0: Welcome friends and family to the latest episode of the Abbey Khan Show. I'm so happy that you are here joining me today. As I sit here recording this intro, it is raining absolute buckets outside. The weather is dismal, which is strange for Australia, but it is. It happens at times, but my day and yours is about to get a whole lot better for I'm about to embark on ...on a journey and a conversation by telling the story of Dr. Eric Helms. Yes, one in the same, the one and only, the guy who is a pinnacle in our health and fitness game. For those of you who don't know who he is, I'm going to give you a little bit of a lowdown. Eric is a coach, athlete, author and educator. He has a Masters in Exercise Science and Sports Nutrition, a PhD in Strength and Conditioning... ...and is a Research Fellow for AUT at the Sports Performance Research Institute in New Zealand... Eric is also the author of the, or one of the authors of the Muscle and Strength Pyramid books, both training and nutrition editions, which are extremely, extremely well revered in the health and fitness game. Today we're about to talk about hybrid training, what that is, and how you can basically optimize that process if you're about to do it. Essentially, what it is, is trying to combine weightlifting and bodybuilding basically trying to get really 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 strong as a weightlifter or powerlifter and simultaneously trying to build a significant amount of muscle tissue what that looks like from a training perspective and a nutrition perspective and what you sort of need to think about whilst you're trying to create your own program as the program itself is just something human beings made up as we tend to do along our journey in evolution so without further ado please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Eric helms you're listening to the abby khan show a podcast that inspires people to achieve what they once believed was impossible my name is abby khan i'm an actor health and fitness coach and it is my mission to connect with interesting people share their stories find out how they optimize their lives for success and how you can do the same Dr. Eric Helms, thank you so much for joining us today. Being on the show is my absolute honor to be talking with you today.
1: Bobby, thanks for having me. It's, a, it's, it's an honor and a, and a privilege.
0: Mate, Just for the people that may not know who you are, which seems quite ridiculous to me in our industry, but can you just give us the, the highlight reel of your story?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm, um, I'm always a little flabbergasted when people say that because to me, I am just a dude who... Uh, got way too invested in lifting, and then kind of kept leaning into that. And today, I'm—it's my intellectual, uh, arguably spiritual pursuit, career, uh, something I do as, as an athlete. It's what I spend most of my time thinking about and doing. Uh, so, yeah, somewhere back oh, 16 years ago, I started lifting weights. Uh, got got all the way bit by the iron bug. Um, became a personal trainer. Um, as most of us do too early after that maybe a little over a year later and then just kept trying to to build from there i got heavily invested in in the iron game myself started competing in powerlifting then natural bodybuilding eventually trying weightlifting still trying weightlifting with an (laughs) emphasis on try um as i have uh let's just say i don't have a lot of talent for bodybuilding or powerlifting I have even less talent for, for, for weightlifting. So I think that spurred me to be very, very interested in the intellectual pursuit of exercise science, exercise psychology, strength, physique. And now, I'm fast forward to 2020, what that's resulted in is I've partnered with a lot of people I love and respect to do what I can to help the lifting community. Uh, I started 3D Muscle Journey along with my colleagues, Alberto Nunez, Brad Loomis, and Jeff Alberts back in uh, late 09, And that became our kind of whole purpose and mission uh, to provide support and education to the drug-free lifting community, especially natural bodybuilding and powerlifting. And uh, we brought in Andrew Valdez uh, a couple years back. Uh, and then I also write books, do a research review, uh, do webinars, podcasts, all related to that same kind of mission statement. And I'm also a research fellow at the Sports Performance Research Institute in New Zealand, here I am. In Auckland, New Zealand, at AUT, where I uh, nerd out with other people who want to dedicate way, way more time than, than is needed to this stuff, and who are doing their masters, and PhDs. That's pretty much me.
0: I think you cut yourself short a little bit in the weightlifting. I saw some of the snatches the other day that you are doing outside in the grass, and they—they they were good. Like you hit—you hit it eventually.
1: Yeah, man. Uh, when you miss, just just keep going, mm. and eventually you'll you'll hit it, or you'll give up, and then you can try the next day. And that was one of those days where I'm. I missed, hit, missed, 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 and then I changed to make it look much more dramatic toward the fifth one, the <laughs> one I got, but, uh, but I'm very proud to say that now that I'm not snatching outside sometimes in the rain with dogs sniffing me uh, on even ground, uh, I came back to the gym at my first snatch session, I'm actually posted to about it today, and I nailed an 80 so clean and I think it was probably the best snatch I've done, so one good thing about lockdown, I was stuck with 90 kilos of weight, uh, that's more than my overhead press and my snatch, Fortunately. That is less than all my other lifts so while they kind of hung around and stayed the same I actually got I think substantially better with my snatch and now it might even be a snatch so so I got that going for
0: me now. <laughs> very that, cool kind of meeting, meeting
1: the movement criteria
0: so, yeah. <laughs> do you think that people are going to have a lot of those new almost new first and that sort of reignition of of motivation and drive when we go back into normality I know you guys are now but the rest of the world as we progress back into that
1: and I think, I think this is going to make people face a lot of things that maybe uh, before they weren't. Um, you know, if you saw yourself as a highly dedicated, motivated athlete who'll do anything to win, and you had trouble even getting off the couch to train because you couldn't set it up perfectly, um, maybe the change of mindset you got from being in a lockdown is what was going to prevent you from having burned out five years from now, and actually figuring out what really does get me motivated. Why am I an all-or-nothing thinker? I can logically tell myself that doing something is better than nothing right now i'm doing nothing because i kind of take this all or nothing approach uh, is that leading me to an early exit from the sport Maybe too much specificity from a more like you know x's nose perspective and more importantly the mentality i have um i think i also came back and i found i probably carry more fatigue than i th- than i realize on a day-to-day basis just being limited to 90 kilos, I was still doing plenty of volume and I was still training five days a week. But the just the absolute loading I could put on myself was uh, the top end was gone and I felt really fresh. It made me think like sometimes I need to go through some periods of unloading and, and just uh, don't lift heavy for a while because I came back and man, I hit a uh, like a beltless conventional deadlift PR on like day three back wow. from the gym and I was like, well, what is happening? <laughs> All I've had is you know, like banded snatch grip deadlifts to try to make it decently hard. So I think there's a lot to learn about your motivation, about your perspective, maybe developing some more intrinsic connection to it, um, facing maybe the ways that if you use training as your only coping strategy, now you can train the way that you, you want it, maybe it helps you develop some other ones. So I think is getting really uncomfortable kind of forces you to expand your comfort zone once you develop new new coping skills. So it may not have been, have been on the terms that we all wanted, it may not have been from our own agency. Uh, It may not have been ideal, and obviously it was at the cost of lives um, of other people, and sometimes, uh, you know, careers and, and financial security. But I think there are positives that could have come out of this for lifters in this narrow kind of perspective.
0: So, in in saying that, do you think people? I'm very much in the same boat as an all or nothing sort of person. As you sort of said, like you you came back day three, hit that that PR and the conventional deadlift. Is it almost to say, of if you are that that end of the spectrum, all or nothing? That perhaps you do need to, as you said there, take more dealers, spend more time on a parasympathetic stake, have a very, very sort of conscious guide of, am I too sympathetically dominant on a day to day, hour to hour basis?
1: Yeah, I don't think we need to put the label of sympathetic, parasympathetic mm-hmm. dominance on it. I think it it really just comes down to if you have a personality where you think you're playing to your strength uh, of being all or nothing, like I can go really, really hard. Um, I I see that as a a long-term weakness for for most athletes if they really think about it. Um, You know, If you look at the most highly successful athletes, uh, yes, they could go there and push themselves to, to, to the nth degree like anybody, but they knew when not to. And that wasn't their strategy. That was a tool and a tool belt they used at the right time. And I think most people who... You know, say things like, you know, obsession is what the, the weak use for dedicated, or you know, shit like that. Um, they're really just covering up for the fact that uh, they're one of their flaws towards their athletic pursuits. The double edged sword of being uh, that kind of mentality is something that helps them, but at a certain stage in your career, it probably hurts you more than it helps you. And you're going to have to deal with that eventually. You can keep kicking that the can down the road, whether you get an injury. Uh, whether you stagnate for, for for years, it'll get self-corrected. Um, but I think it's much more preferable to have that self-correction be on your terms. You know, getting the proverbial oil change instead of waiting until your car car breaks down is kind of what I'm getting at.
0: Hmm. So if we touch on the sort of pursuit of, I guess, hybrid trading, we'll call it, is the, the trend of Getting trying to get really, really strong in our in our sort of big three movements and probably overhead press and, and pull up as well and bodybuilding, the combination of, of those two. Is is there a a correct, I guess, way of trying to pursue pursue that particular goal and is it even a good idea?
1: Um well, I mean it's a good idea if that's what you want to do. Mm. Like this is all made up shit, right? Yeah. Like I mean <laughs> no. some guy, you know, like I mean, if you go back to what uh, weightlifting was in the early 1900s, it was like they change it every time. Uh, it's these different single lifts, dumbbells, and even before that, in the Olympics, it was part of track and field or athletics, um, and it was one of the many events. And then it became its own thing. And then eventually, they standardized it to the three barbell lifts: snatch, clean and jerk, and then clean and press. And eventually, they went—you know—the press is really getting out of out of hand. Let's just make it snatch and clean and jerk, and then right before that around the same time they said hey we should do something with these odd lifts too um which ones oh let's go you know squad bench and and deadlift and i don't want to call them odd lifts so if we're going to make this a real thing let's call it powerlifting you know so Mm. the all of this stuff is just humans making up shit to do yeah uh, to to push themselves so i think whether it's a good idea or not um you kind of need to to kill those false idols and be like you know oh but you can't pursue these two goals at the same time like I'm actually really pleased. You say what you will about CrossFit, but you can find people who are an international caliber in the weightlifting movements, the powerlifting movements, and could jump into a random five or ten k and do quite well. Are they world champions? No, but neither is 99.9999% of people. So the fact that they can do that is pretty cool, mm-hmm. you know. So the question is, is what are your goals? It's very easy for someone to look at someone else and not have the same goal and be very kind of. I'm going to say egocentric, but I, I guess I mean limited in their view and not be able to put their shoes in someone else's and go, you know, you'd be a better bodybuilder if you didn't do that silly weightlifting stuff. And if the person goes, looks at them and goes, do you think I don't know that? Like I'm, my goal is to do both. So, um, so, so how are you helping me there? So the really the question is, is, is this a goal that you want to pursue? And then what's the best approach? And I will say that there probably is a best approach, but there isn't the best approach. There is the best approach for you right now. Uh, if you understand that you have individual needs related to your goal. Uh, So for example, uh, if you were to take a uh, a bodybuilder who's going into powerlifting, or if you were to take a bodybuilder who's going into weightlifting, uh, they're going to have different demands than someone who spent a lot of time weightlifting or powerlifting and then went into bodybuilding, even though ostensibly these two people have the same goal of I want to be good at bodybuilding and weightlifting or bodybuilding and powerlifting. But where did you start? So, for example, and the same could be said even within the strength disciplines. So, I'll use myself as a as an example. um, I'm a mediocre power lifter, you know. But what a mediocre power lifter is is stronger than most weightlifters, and um, compared to novice weightlifters, people just starting, way stronger than them, you know. So, I came into weightlifting with a you know over 200 kilo squat, right? And so immediately. Instead of taking a novice and going, all right, we need to get you uh, the 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 motor patterns down, the technical expertise. Um, We need to uh, establish the the mobility, stability, strength, all the things that allow you to be in those positions. Um, And then we also need to, you know, raise the ceiling on your strength. So even if we just got you really, really good at doing the snatch and clean and jerk, that you weren't limited by like you not getting stuck in the hole, you know, because you're not strong enough to stand up with a snatch, you know, so. Those are concurrent things that for a novice pretty much everybody has to work on all of them unless you're just crazy mobile or really naturally you know immobile then that becomes a more but if we if we take the the quintessential mean median type person who enters weightlifting it doesn't exist, but you know some if you follow from that normal bell curve you're going to have to spend time on all three of those buckets um, but if you come from a powerlifting background and your conventional deadlift is double what you can clean right now, and your snatch is one-third of your squat, you don't need to do any work on, on on squat and deadlift. You could effectively neglect them for an entire year, and you would still not be limited by strength. Uh, you'd have, like, you know, they'd be slowly decaying, but they'd be getting built somewhat by all the accessory work you're doing. So the, the answer for that person um, who comes from a powerlifting background into weightlifting is going to be a very different answer than someone who is, Uh, doesn't have that background so i I guess what i'm getting at is that you need to figure out what is your primary uh what 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 is pushing your ceiling down on on what your strength can be uh and then okay what's what's the 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 path of least resistance to where i can use the most resistance in training uh and that's going to look a little different for everyone
0: so if someone comes and wants wants to pursue that path and go okay i want to do this this hybrid training, i want to get really, really strong in these sort of big three movements, and I want to still build a significant amount of muscle tissue, would there be a better starting point of like, cool, do bodybuilding for a while, build some mass up, or go into the strength part of things first?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. So I think if you look at um, strength athletes uh, across the board, whether they're they're strong men or strong women, powerlifters or weightlifters, um, there is a really strong relationship between cross-sectional area, lean body mass, muscle thickness, um, or, uh, muscle volume. And there's different studies on all of these. If you do cross-sectional work, when you look at the relationship between their total or a given lift and the uh, their, their overall muscle mass or specific muscle mass, when you try to find relationships in similar, in the muscle groups that are involved in those lifts. And then even when you look at reasonably well-trained lifters and their relationship between their change in strength and the relationship between their change in lean body mass you start to see pretty strong relationships that seem to get stronger the higher level you are uh, because the thing about an elite athlete is you see uh, selection bias and survivorship bias to where you see a little more homogeneity in terms of the uh the technique uh the body types so it gets filtered through who can be really good at the sport so when you start looking at like elite powerlifters, for example, um what can differ between them is less and less and less and what tends to discriminate between elite powerlifters is who has more muscle mass. So I think it's really important to understand that when you've got really, really good technique, uh, when you have really well um, you know, neuromuscular capacities and the other morphological adaptations that allow you to uh, distribute and handle force have all pretty well maximally adapted. Uh, you turn the volume dial up or down on how much contractile tissue you have and you're going to be stronger or weaker. So, that means that uh, at different points in an athlete's career you need to focus on different things and it's going to be related to the individual stuff i talked about but then also which of these aspects of your uh, strength has more of a predilection to adapt quickly uh, and which is fine-tuned early so for someone who starts off with a really really good coach uh, maybe has an athletic background that's non-specific to strength sports not a lot of muscle mass but maybe something highly technical um, you know, maybe they were a dancer uh, or maybe they uh, got into gymnastics at an early age and then, but not really like kind of gymnastics, but a lot of muscle, which is not really a thing. But let's just hypothetically say they're really good at learning movements, but don't have a whole lot of muscle mass. They might very quickly become a skilled power and be limited by muscle mass, right? So um, this is something... You, you will see relatively commonly, if someone gets entered into powerlifting uh, or, or weightlifting with a pretty specialized approach, and what by specialized I mean is they're, uh, the vast majority of what they do is the squat, the bench, and the deadlift, or the snatch, and the clean and jerk, um, and maybe they're, they're a little stubborn in terms of how quickly their muscles grow, and let's say they're also taking a relatively low volume approach. So it's highly specific, high intensity, uh, and then necessarily a lower volume and maybe a lower frequency. Um, it's not uncommon for them to get a very, very good initial bump in gains as they make these technical improvements, find the right uh, movement pattern, whether that's low bar, high bar, or sumo, conventional, wide grip, medium grip on bench press, um, and really, really dial everything in, and then they just need more muscle mass. And that, that's a common thing you'll start to see uh, at the intermediate phase. You know, like in a lot of lifters, they will spend – too much time thinking about well, what weight class could I cut down to to make my current total good, right? Um, and that's that's kind of like the intermediate trap as an example uh, because what you really need to do is find a way forward to keep improving without like trying to game the system of trying to drop some body fat and be stronger uh, and just get stronger. Um, you may not be elite but almost always the uh, – I rarely see the answer for advanced level athletes is to just do more. Um, but it often is the answer for intermediates who have kind of finished out their newbie games and now they plateau. Is they need to find a way to do more, and build that work capacity, uh, manage that fatigue, and have it become the new normal. Uh, and then once they've kind of beat that second plateau and had some really good games, then that's when they start to really need some some quite individual approaches. Almost by definition, the advanced or elite level athlete uh, needs a very specialized, or I should say, individualized approach. Uh, to get them to progress. So kind of what the the lifespan of an athlete looks like is you build everything initially. You know, an early phase strength athlete is working on um, hypertrophy strength and technique, um, but they don't have to separate them. You know, if you just start doing a moderate amount of volume across a moderate amount of uh, rep ranges that includes specific and non-specific work for uh, a novice and early stage intermediate, they'll get all of it because the ceiling rather I should say the threshold for an adaptation is so low because they're so far away from where they can get. Uh, and then once they kind of hit that first plateau, it could be a nice evenly spread plateau, but most of the time you'll find uh, that they are going to have a specific area for that person uh, that needs to be emphasized. Um, so again, using using myself as an example, I'm, I'm like a late stage novice for weightlifting. Um and for me, I have very specific problems now uh, that because I come from a powerlifting background, even though I'm a relatively novice weightlifter, uh, I have all the strength that I will ever need for probably what my capacity is on clean and jerk and snatch. Um, however, a stable overhead position, uh, timing, rhythm, and um, you know, changing some bad habits and, and getting um, better at, at, at new habits is kind of what I need to focus on. So. Uh, that that's kind of the way to look at it, and I think the more complex the skill you're trying to learn, this is kind of juxtaposing weightlifting versus powerlifting, um, then the more like the more chaos theory comes into it. You know, it's a dynamical system. There's more shit that's changing. There's more things that that, that can compensate down the chain. You change one thing, and other stuff changes. Um, so what that results in is that uh, when I speak to weightlifting coaches. Um, they are much less systematic. Like, they start with the same process, but they understand that the road is going to fork so many times based on a whole bunch of different variables that could be limiting performance for their athletes. Um, so, I've, for example, on Iron Culture, I was talking to uh, Max Ada and Greg and Amy Everett of Catalyst Athletics, and they were, Max especially, since he coaches and has competed in both powerlifting and weightlifting, he was talking about how weightlifting, there's just so many different pathways to roam Uh, that could end up needing to be the solution for your athlete, and that that will change at different times, you know, um, because they will make some technique change that requires something else. Or they were fix that overhead position, and now they have a spurt of gains, and they stop because now some little thing that needed to be fixed back then is now the thing you focus on. So it's uh, it's, it's a more complex uh, motor skill to do a snatch or a clean and jerk than a squat bench or deadlift. Um, which means that there is more potential solutions and more potential problems. Um, so I think what I'm getting at is that hypertrophy is kind of like the the engine in the race car. You know, it's it's the raw power, if you will. You need you need the raw power. There's no way around it. Um, but uh, there's only so much you can do if you can't do something with that that raw power. You know. If you take a drag race car and you put it on a windy track, it's just going to go off the side and lose the race, despite the fact that it's got way more horsepower than every other uh, car on the track. So I think um, you don't want hypertrophy to be neglected uh, at any given point. You want to make sure it's sufficient. Um, but the more closed the task, uh, the more the lower the technical demand, the closer and closer the importance of hypertrophy to the skill becomes. Um and i think there's 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 ways to look at this um where uh like essentially if you think about the like the competitive advantage being bigger has in bodybuilding it's really really clear like if you are an enhanced bodybuilder versus a natural bodybuilder they might be a hundred pound difference in you being the nattiest of natty versus the the most uh pharmacologically enhanced and you could possibly be if you have you know the body that responds really well to that. Um, however, if you compare, um, say for example, ostensibly clean versus ostensibly enhanced uh, powerlifters or weightlifters, especially in the powerlifting community, where this, there's like the it's not like hey you're you an international grade you're in a com- you're in a country that doesn't do internal testing. So you probably only need to be clean like for this time period, and maybe you've, you've 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 had some doping violations in the past. There's suspicion or there's rumors or whatever. That that's a tough one because then it's like you're you're kind of you're you're natty for sometimes, and there's only so much you can take, you know. But if you can in powerlifting, there is you can get randomly tested and be in a pretty well regulated sport, or you can choose to go where it's no holds barred. And when you look at someone who does not change weight classes, you know a reasonable estimate estimate is like a ten percent improvement in strength. Now that's huge. Don't get me wrong. If you're totaling seven hundred and you go to seven seventy, that will take you from you know like tenth place at nationals to 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 first in some countries, as an example, if in the rank weight class. So I mean that that sounds like not much, but ten percent is huge. But in bodybuilding, it could be you're one hundred and eighty pounds on stage. Now you're 280 pounds on stage. So like just the raw amount of muscle mass that you can get is huge, but it can only be converted to strength so so effectively. And then, you know, as you, as you get more and more technical, it starts falling off. Like no one's like, man, I can't wait to make more free throws when I get on gear, you know, that's that's not a thing, you know? so.
0: And how would you look at periodizing that going between both phases? Obviously it's going to be very contextual and individualized, but how would you look at, periodizing the, I guess, the technical weightlifting aspects and the hypertrophy aspects as well?
1: Yeah, I mean, sometimes you don't even need to worry about it. If someone is super, super well-built for, um, I think I, I could speak more confidently about powerlifting because that's, that's what I've coached, that's what I've been in a long time, and I, I think there's there's more to master as a weightlifting uh, practitioner, coach, and athlete. So I, I'll say for, for powerlifting, uh, and probably for most strength goals that people are listening to here, um, if you're well built and you have the movement pattern, there's no mobility restrictions, no prior injuries, um, and your technique falls into the normal bell curve. You, you look, you look like a squat when you squat, not not a good morning, because uh, you know you've got long femurs. If you know the bench looks like a bench and a deadlift looks like a deadlift instead of like a basketball player trying to to tie his shoes or something like that, um, then. Then all good. You know, simply doing those movements, and if you're nice and robust and you do them well, um, that can be your main focus. Uh, if you don't fit into the nice, pretty picture of, of who would self select into a high level, um, that's when you have to consider is the squat the best vehicle to get me better uh, muscular development and the muscles that contribute to a squat? And maybe you can make an argument it is, due from like a specificity perspective, uh, but is it the one that induces the the least amount of fatigue for every unit of stimulus, uh, and is it the one that's going to result in the least amount of injuries? Like if you do look like a good morning when you squat, just as by necessity of limb lengths and mobility restrictions, yeah, when you get on the platform, that's what your squats going to be. But is that the best way to build your your, your quad size? Doing a bunch of squats like that, um, should you be using the main list as a vehicle? And I think there's something to be said for kind of having some contrast to these. I would say that the typical power builder trap is to do one of two things. One is to have a bodybuilding program, but just drop the rep ranges low. Like, yeah, I do. I just do a bodybuilder program, and I include the big three. But yeah, I do my tricep pushdowns. I do my lateral raises, my rows, my pull downs. But everything's done in like the four to six rep range. So you're trying to do curls, lat pushdowns, uh, you know, weighted chins, and you know, there's nothing wrong with with moving like like trying to move a lot of weight with those. But the mindset there is, is, is kind of a little bit illogical. It's thinking specificity for strength is training in the strength rep range. It means I need to go heavy. Um, and then forgetting that a tricep pushdown has arguably zero transfer from a movement perspective to a bench press. You're standing up. You know, there's no, there's no, contra, there's no horizontal abduction. It's, you're not laying on your back with a bar. Um, so why do you need to do tricep pushdowns? Well, I'm doing tricep pushdowns to get bigger triceps. You're not doing tricep pushdowns to enhance force production, you know, in that joint angle and that point. So why are you doing fives? You need to do whatever the appropriate rep range is for that movement that doesn't cause you pain and you can accumulate volume and progress in and grow muscle. So I never. Und- I, I think when you see a power builder and they're doing like five by five on lat pull down and rows and triceps and biceps uh, and hamstring curls. They're missing something. They don't realize why they're doing those movements. Uh, those movements are useful ways to get bigger muscle groups uh, in, 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 in muscles that are normally only trained through much more stressful movements. So, power building is great, but don't get into that trap. And also, don't get into the other trap of doing only compounds that you want to get stronger in, but then doing bodybuilder rep ranges. So, those are typically the two ways people filter, like sweet. Hypertrophy is 8 to 12, 4 to 5 sets, a little more volume, a little less rest. I'll just do that on deadlifts and squats. So I think that's, yeah, that'll have more transfer to a 1RM than doing that on a leg extension or a leg curl, but not nearly as much as you think uh, because it's already so nonspecific. Uh, eight, 8 to 12 reps, you know, 70% is really different than the 90%, and it's even more different to 100%. So, if you're trying to get that to transfer to a one RM, you have to ask at that point. Um, you're looking at the difference between being super non specific and mostly super non specific, you know? So you're already away from it. So then you have to ask, all right, well, is this sustainable? Should I be doing five by 10 on squats when I could perhaps be doing some hack squats or leg press or something that, that uh, has a lower cost of, of fatigue and a lower risk of injury, arguably? And I think. That's where the kind of the contrast makes a little more sense, you know. So, this this might look like you keep singles in to some degree most of the year when you're training in the lifts you care about getting stronger at. But the singles don't have to be heavy, they could be, you know, a single at 80 to 90%, you know, and a single at 90%, you should never miss if it's actually 90%, you know. The equivalent would be like a single at like a seven RPE, um, and then a single at 80% would be like a single at like a four or five RPE. If you feel the weight on your back, you get to practice the movement, and it keeps the finger on the pulse of where is your strength dipping and going, and is it hopefully trending upwards. And then you get your volume on other movements, you know, uh, ones that are well suited to you, that you have access to, that don't beat you up, that you recover from well, and don't leave you with uh, with joint pain. And then as you get closer to the time when you actually want to express or test or compete that with that strength, uh, that is when it starts to become more specific, those singles become a couple singles. Uh, the the RPE goes up a little bit, or the percentage goes up a little bit, and the the time invested in that is pulled from the same total time, so that means there's necessarily less time for uh, accessory movements. That's kind of one way to think of it. You know, you shouldn't be increasing your session time to two hours once you get, you know, closer to, to, to specificity, because now the volume isn't actually going down. That's not, not true linearity where volume goes down and, and specificity intensity goes up. So if you're going to be investing more time on being strong, learning a specific skill, and peaking, you also have to drop off some of that time commitment, uh, recovery demand uh, from the accessory movements, and you have to trust that the fact that now that you're doing, you know, a heavy single at eight and then a three by four afterwards, that that's going to be sufficient at least for a mesocycle to maintain the quad, glute, ham, and erector mass you built when you were doing, you know, uh, GHRs hack squats. Uh, lunges and uh, and leg press uh, each week, and now you're just doing squats and deadlifts. So that's kind of the mentality. It, it brings in that element of periodization, uh, and it thinks about all right. If I want to spend early on doing a lot of volume, building as much muscle mass as I can, then I want to just sustain it while I put all the the remaining effort I have that isn't just putting my muscle size on the back burner into being strong in the specific thing I care about. What does that balance look like?
0: Yeah, I think it, I think it was Ed Cohen that, that sort of said that I, I got to where I am because I never missed a lift in training. Mm-hmm. Yeah, run
1: and that's certainly I think there there you'll see different approaches out there. Mm. You know, there's um like if you take a look at the West Side guys; they're they're not they're not afraid to miss. Yeah, <laughs> they got eighteen spotters around them. They got you know the, the chain thing. They got the monolift, yeah. and uh, you know, the, I, I think many approaches can't work, but I think that you just want to avoid thinking in black and white terms for what strength means. Strength does not just mean I only do low reps, and strength does not just mean I only do the lifts that I care about getting stronger on. Um, if you're if you're intelligent and you understand some of these relationships, you can uh, you can kind of game the system if you will. Uh, take the, the best tools from bodybuilding that makes sense, and pick take the best tools from strength sports, sport that makes sense, and bring them together.
0: Yeah, I guess it's about thinking about using the best tool for the job. As you said, tricep extension, for example, you're like, are you really going to get really strong? Do you really want to get really strong at doing a tricep extension?
1: No, you just want to do them to get bigger triceps, right? Yeah. And that you think it's it's kind of like, um, if you, I like to think of, and this is I'm, I'm, this is not my quote, I've said it a lot because it's really, really good, and I think it's help, helpful conceptually, that if you take a glass, and, and you think of this glass, how much water you can get in it as your strength, right? Right. The size of the glass is roughly the morphological adaptations. It's your it's your muscle size, and the amount of water is your strength. So doing tricep pushdowns probably puts like a drop of water at most into your glass for bench strength, but it does make the glass a little bigger. So right now is a tricep pushdown doing anything? No, pr- probably not at all. You know, uh, similarly to if you were doing like you know peck flies or or a front delt raise. You know, if you do an isolation movement. Uh, that's a very different pattern: standing versus lying down. Um, you know these type of things. You know your cable crossovers, your your, your front delt raises, your your overhead tricep extensions. Um, they're not going to do nothing. But the investment is primarily in making that glass bigger. Um, and making a glass bigger when you need to drink water, which is essentially your competition, does nothing for you. So the time to do that uh, is is early on. And then then when you do need to fill that glass up to, to brimming. Uh, and trying to get the most out of it, uh, that that's when you want to have a large glass that hasn't shrunk much from 12 weeks ago when you are doing all your, your kickbacks, uh, but you want to be spending time putting water in the glass, uh, and that's when the old adage is true, like what's the thing that's going to make your, your squat the best right now? Squats, yeah. you know, <laughs> so yeah.
0: I love that uh, um, that analogy, as brilliant as that, and what would... um. What would nutrition look like from from going between those phases and try to express as much strength and force as we can? Would we be looking at going at least maintenance, calorie surplus, going into bodybuilding, perhaps trying to get, I mean improvements in body composition? What would nutrition look like between those two phases?
1: Yeah, that, that, that one's much less complicated. It doesn't change much. You know, the, the nutrition uh, information I give to a bodybuilder or a powerlifter doesn't change a whole lot until we're talking about bodybuilding contest prep, which is it's kind of its whole animal, well, own unique animal, I should say. Uh, this is going to have much more to do with the individual, with where do they sit relative to, to – if, if they're a competitor, it almost comes down entirely to um, what kind of body mass do you have relative to your height Relative to your relationship with food and your kind of resting settling point for body composition, uh, that and how does that relate to your weight class? Are you someone who hangs out a couple kilos under, uh, and we don't need to worry about it too much, and/or uh, are you that person who has muscle to grow and we need to be trying to push up to the top end of the weight class, or do you happen to have a really muscular physique but you're just kind of at an odd height? That puts you slightly below your weight class, and then we need to ask the question of: Does it make sense to go down, or does it make sense to put on a little bit of body fat and see if that makes you stronger? Um, and then there's a lot of people these days, you know, that kind of this whole survivorship bias, self-selection into the the people who are most likely to succeed. Um, I'm thinking folks like Russ Swole, you know, um, people who are as many kilos over their weight class as they can be without that cut down negatively affecting them. You know, um, Ellis McLean, another example. Somebody guy guy who hangs out at a triple digit body weight, but then cuts down to a double digit from a kilo perspective to make weight, because that results in the net, the net, the highest total possible. Um, and then, does that person have the psychology for that? Are they okay being three percent stronger? Uh, you know, six months out of the year, and then when they actually are, the chips are down, and they want to perform their best. They're actually down a little bit because they happen to be someone who has to cut, you know, five kilos for for competition. So that is going to be a very, very individual uh, approach for a competitor. Now, if you're a non-competitor, it really just comes down to uh, what what is "quote unquote" ideal. Um, so that depends, and again, on where you start. You know, if you're someone who is um, you, you started lifting at the same time as you're also going on a, a weight loss journey. You know, you're trying to to, to get more or less healthier in the long run, then just do the work and then just keep keep on focusing on that goal, um, especially if you're early on and especially if you are carrying a fair amount of body fat. Uh, think of that as you almost have the extra food with you um, uh, that, that, that would, would make some of these things not apply to you. But if you take someone who's low in body fat and you put them in a deficit, that's when things start to go poorly. You know, So um, if you're trying to stay really, really lean all the time... Uh, to the point where you're focused on food, hungry most of the time, don't don't sleep well consistently, uh, and you struggle to get stronger. That's probably indicating uh, that your current nutritional status is not supportive of your goals. Uh, you can do all this hypertrophy work, but you're probably not going to grow much. Uh, you're getting good at doing work, but you're not actually uh, supplying the material to actually lay down more contractile tissue. You're not making your glass bigger. So, likewise, um, you know if you're uh, if, if you're in, in in a deficit, that 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 could even uh, cir- circumvent it more. But if you're an early stage lifter, high in body fat, yeah, so you can cut during a hypertrophy phase, and you will absolutely grow muscle. We've got data to support that, and a ton of anecdote. Um, so it, it's individualized. But let's say you are someone who's in in the middle bell curve, you're just a hang around healthy, uh, you know, you know body weight and body composition, and uh, kind of the hypothetical optimal would be yeah, while you're doing more volume and trying to grow muscle, you probably want to be in a small surplus. Um, and I think the, the key there is small, um, because often we kind of fall into these, these adages and these tropes that are sometimes true, but sometimes are oversimplifications or sometimes are inherited from uh, people who are have more advantages pharmacologically than we might. Hmm. Um, so, you know, like, yeah, lose lose a pound, one to two pounds a week is okay for most people unless you're on either end of the spectrum. You know, if you're someone with obesity and you're trying to lose 400 pounds, a pound to two a week is actually probably too slow, be very unmotivated. Um, something more like 0.5 to 1.5% of your body weight per week is much more reasonable. And if you are, you know, 200 kilos, that's three kilos a week. That's really fast uh, from an absolute sense, but absolutely something your body can do uh, when your caloric expenditure is so high because you're moving so much mass and when there's so much body fat to actually tap into. And on the other end of the spectrum, you know, telling someone who is a, you know, five foot two female who is, you know, let's say 55 kilos uh, to lose one to two pounds a week or 0.5 to one kilogram might be too fast and leaves them with no calories and could just, uh, you know, result in an eating disorder or malnutrition. So I think uh, an appropriate rate of weight loss instead of one to two pounds might be 0.5 to 1% of your body weight or if you're pretty high in body fat up to 1.5%, and then we tend to just flip that and put it into that's what your surplus should be, you know, gain a gain a, gain a pound or, or two a week uh, when you're gaining, and back in my day, it was, and if you're natural, keep it at one pound, but that's still super, super fast and way too aggressive if you actually look at the data we have. That might be appropriate for your first two to three months if you're, um, you know, over 5'9", or something like that, but um, man, when you're talking about someone who's already gained a fair amount of muscle mass... <laughs> They might only be able to gain, you know, five five pounds in a year. You know, that adds up. You know, you take an intermediate over three years, put on fifteen pounds. Now they're an elite level athlete in terms of muscle mass. You know, but um, but I think the reality is is that something more like taking that weekly recommendation and making it monthly is probably more appropriate for for rates of muscle gain for for people who are uh, for who are, who are natural. So that kind of lines up with some of the data we have is limited, um, but it also lines up with kind of the time courses we're talking about. So you basically don't want to be in a deficit and you probably want to be in a small surplus during a phase when you're focusing on, um, trying to build muscle mass. And then, uh, I would probably keep, just keep yourself out of a deficit while you're going through an intensity phase and trying to build uh, strength. You want to make sure you're recovering the, um, I mean, if you're high in body fat, it probably again doesn't matter that much. Um, but for someone who again isn't within that bell curve, slight slight surplus, and then down into something that is uh, a, a su- sufficient to not put you in a deficit uh, when you're when you're kind of in that lower volume, more specific phase that is unlikely to build muscle, but certainly will maintain your muscle and will build specific strength.
0: now perfect. So if we're looking at a let's call it an, an off season for increasing the size of that glass so predominantly obviously this would probably apply to bodybuilding would there be a better protocol to go through i know that um and what i'm trying to get at is try to do it almost a let's call it a lean bulk trying to get as big as possible without getting as fat as possible in the in the off season is there a specific protocol that you like running with that
1: yeah, I mean it's it's basically, it, it emerges from these guidelines and what we see here. So if we know that trying to gain like a 0. 0.5 to 1% of your body weight per week ends up being way too fast and this puts on predominantly body fat from the data we have, and any advantage you gain in additional muscle mass, which might be some, but it won't be much and it won't be, it'll be disproportionate. So that the ratio of lean to fat mass gain will be poorer, even though absolutely right now you will gain a little bit more. So, you know, do you want to gain an extra? Hundred grams of muscle, you know, a month uh, to gain an extra two kilograms of body fat, that's probably not worth it, because at some point you have to do something with that. So, what a more aggressive approach often leads to is more frequent periods of being in a calorie deficit and dieting off the body fat you gained. And from the data we have, and I actually was part of a, a good narrative review on this, led by Gary Slater, um, you might be familiar with, he's a mm-hmm. sports science researcher out of Australia. Really smart guy, really good guy. Um, is that you probably don't want to be in a deficit. You know, there's nothing like we, we there's nothing mechanistically that's better about being in a five calorie surplus or a 500 calorie surplus. You know, I think one in a practical sense just makes sure that we are actually sufficiently fueled. And the reality is, is you're never being in a surplus or deficit is not a switch. On or off. You know, if you're in a five calorie surplus, that means there's periods of time in you're in deficit, there's periods of time when you're in your surplus, the net result is a very, very, very small surplus. You kick that up to a couple hundred calories, and now there's less time spent in a deficit. And when you're in a deficit, uh, there are some things that are counter to the goal of, of putting on muscle mass, you know. Um, so anyway, the uh, essentially don't don't be in a deficit is the answer there. And that means that, okay, well, if I don't want to be in a deficit and if I put on body fat too quickly, I take a leaner, slower approach towards gaining just by rate of gains. If i try trying to gain, let's say, a kilo a month, um, and let's say, great case scenario, 50% of that is muscle mass, then there will be a point pretty quickly where I have more body fat than I want to carry. And it's actually not even half and half, it would probably be like, you know, 60, 40. 70, 30, 80, 20, 90, 10, and at the end, it's like 90% fat, 10% muscle as you go on, and I need to clean up, you know, um, and understand that those rates keep, kind of stay down once you get there, because of, you're getting more and more advanced, closer and closer to genetic ceiling for muscle mass, so what it, what it ends up looking like is, I normally recommend, as a rule of thumb, uh, no faster uh, than needing to do a mini cut, like, in a 4 to 1 ratio, so, for example. If you earned, if if you did one week of, uh, let's say four weeks of of um, being in a surplus, you've earned yourself a week of being in a deficit. But I don't think you should do, uh, you know, one month, one week. I would rather see someone do like four months, one month. You know, and that that way you're you're essentially putting yourself into a a modest surplus, supporting those muscle mass gains, and then you know when needed, you're you're cleaning up. And that's again the fastest I would do it so I, I've, I've spent periods of time where you know a year and a half I was in a either either a slight slight surplus or maintenance and then I look up and I go, okay I'm a 100 kilos now I'm a 93 kilo, kilo lifter and I, I look uh, muscularly lean but not shredded by any means at the low 90s It's time to clean up I've got you know eight kilos of body fat and some additional glycogen and, and food food bulk weight hanging around my body right now that I don't need.
0: I'm feeling a little bit too fluffy right now. I'm, I feel like cuddling myself too too many times through the day.
1: Exactly. So, I mean, I, and I, I think in in our society and especially people interested in bodybuilding, a lot of the times they're not making a rational decision based on something optimal. Um, it's based on what they feel like society has told them is acceptable. And uh, they don't have self-worth. They don't love themselves. They don't like what they see in the mirror. Uh, they need to have abs to be attractive or, or a good good human if they're a male, or they need to not have, you know, muffin top, et cetera. You know, whatever whatever messaging they're getting, um, maybe asking them to be leaner than is appropriate or healthy. And my advice for someone who is actually not in a weight class or not competing in bodybuilding is try to adjust. It's very difficult to do. Obviously, society has a huge influence. Try to adjust what you see as where you like to be based on where you feel the best and where you're objectively healthy. Get blood work done, you know? If you're exercising, you have a healthy lifestyle, you're walking regularly, you know, I see nothing wrong, especially if blood work looks good, at being at 25% body fat as a man. There's nothing wrong with that. Like, the only thing you could say about it is something just randomly judgmental, like, ugh, I don't like the way that works, the way that looks, you know? It's like, well, okay, but there's nothing wrong with it, you know? That's up to you. It's your body. But don't let other people tell you that. So um, and it only becomes a problem where we need to really reconsider things if we're trying to achieve something that's inherently unhealthy. Which I think is a lot of the messaging is like, Yeah, man, I wanna you know, try to hang out at eight to ten percent body fat. Like, give me a break. Like a legit eight to ten percent body fat most dudes are like constantly talking about food, you know, and not sticking to the night and have no libido. So
0: yeah, I think we, we try and coin this term "healthy," but what does health actually mean? And as you sort of said there, get your blood work done, get these objective measurements to know what healthy actually is. Because walking around at eight to ten percent body fat all year round isn't healthy. And if you've been there, as you said, like you just want to, you just want to eat. Like it fucking sucks. There's nothing fun about it whatsoever.
1: Yeah, uh, and it, I I very much just go on behavior. Like if if you're constantly focused on food, um, if you can't. Uh, if, if your behavior all belies someone who needs to eat more, you probably need to eat more, you know? And, um, and that whole, like nothing tastes as good as being lean feels said the person who hasn't, has, hasn't been really, really lean for that long, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, or who has a really unhealthy relationship with their body, mm. you know, to where it's like, it's not really that lean feels good to anything except lean equals. I don't have self-worth, mm. which is a very different proposition. Um, Cause yeah, I tell you what, man. Being shredded, it gets tired. Like I, I get tired of my butt getting sore from sitting on hard surfaces. <laughs> you know, like please give me some ass fat back. You know, like and there's some point. You know, when I compete, where I'm like two months out, kind of that that kind of agreed upon bodybuilding community uh, body composition, where I objectively think I probably look more attractive based on societal norms right now than this more sucked up look like. My my face is way too lean. I went from looking younger now. I look a little older, yeah. like way too much. Like I'm wearing a beard just to cover up the fact that I, I look like Skeletor. You know, like that's it's not attractive. Like no one wants to be able to look at you from behind and see your butthole without you bending over. Like that's not good. Like that's all gross. You know, um, give me the point where I have muscle separation. Um, and, uh, but my, my butt doesn't look like a rib cage any day. Um, am um, I think, I think most people would, would go like, that's objectively better,
0: you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think as just, what you said there was perfect. It's when people get to that, that psyche of, I need to be below 10%, 8%, whatever it is to feel healthy, to feel good about myself it's probably about time that you start doing some more work on yourself, whether you are doing some more, go seeing a a therapist. There's nothing wrong with that. Going seeing someone asking for help and going, why am I feeling this way? Because in the long term, you're only going to create just a negative cascade of just shit in your life. Absolutely. Well Mm. said. So if we're looking at refeeds, diet breaks, what are your thoughts and standpoint on it? Are they efficient? Are they necessary for someone that wants to get leaner?
1: I mean they're not efficient. I think that, that that's, um, but that's not that's not the game, right? The game of, of nonlinear dieting or intermittent caloric restriction is saying that the uh, the cost the cost to benefit ratio the, the analysis here is such that it is better if uh, it, there's a disproportionate advantage uh, to being less efficient. It's the same kind of thing of saying about about strength we were talking about. Yes, the best way to get stronger right now is squats, but if you have little, tiny uh, sticks for legs, that's not what you're spending your time investing in doing, unless you've got a comp tomorrow, then yeah, back squat tonight and then rest, you know, Mm -hmm. like get the movement pattern down and see what you can do tomorrow. Uh, But if you told me this person wanted to compete in powerlifting long term, they'd be doing some leg presses and lunges and things like that, right? So the If I've got someone who's eight weeks out and they have about 12 weeks' worth of body fat to lose for a show, there's not a diet break on on the cards, right? But if someone comes to me and says, I want to take the best approach that will result in me being uh, performing best on stage for my next show, I'm going to plan for diet breaks and refeeds. Um, And the data we have on this is, I mean, the the most data we have is anecdote, um, which, which looks pretty good when it's done right. Uh, and uh, the data we have in the actual field is emerging, but on net balance, it's positive. Um, off air, you mentioned Jackson Pios, who's mm-hmm. finishing up his uh, PhD out of uh, University of Western Australia. And early on in his PhD, he consulted with me and asked me to uh, to come on board, not not as a supervisor, but like as an unofficial advisor. And I've been publishing with him, and he's been telling me all about his work. And uh, we're actually just just submitting his uh, his study that he's completed for his. Um, for his PhD, So I've gotten to see some of these results firsthand. It's really exciting stuff. Uh, so I can't speak to that unpublished data as of yet. Um, but I will say that it does seem to be that there are some, uh, I would argue, primarily psychological and adherence-related uh, appetite advantages to a, uh, a nonlinear approach to dieting, diet breaks, and athletes. Uh, other data we have, there's a study by Byrne and colleagues that showed um, superior basically an advantage for maintenance of, uh, rest of my, resting metabolic rate and in uh, fat loss when taking diet breaks per unit of time uh, and then most recently we saw a 48 hour refeed so like basically a 5 and 2 setup so five low days two high days versus seven low days uh, come out of Dr. Bill Campbell's lab in well trained uh, reasonably lean people trying to get leaner and i think it was a 7 week diet uh, so one group had a 20% or calorie deficit on uh, all seven days, and the other group had 35% on five days, so same net calorie deficit per week, but the group that had the 35% for the two days, they were at maintenance, uh, and they bumped their carbs up to get to the maintenance calories, and at the end of it, they saw better dry, fat-free mass retention, um, which means when corrected for total body water, they saw an advantage uh, on ultrasound of how much muscle mass they had Uh, retained on the course of the diet. It was significantly more than the group that had just the straight deficit. Um, So there's emerging data to suggest that coming out of a deficit, um, yeah, it's going to take you longer or it requires you to have harsher deficits on the days you are deficiting (laughs) for the same amount of time. So you could do it like Campbell did it and have uh, the same amount of time total in terms of weeks, but uh, lower calories on your low days to uh, account for the fact that you have higher calories in your high days. Or you could do it like Burn and colleagues or uh, like Jackson Pios's study and have a longer total time with, with the diet break uh, ratio. So, for example, Burn and colleagues had a two on, two off, two weeks on, two weeks off, two weeks on, two weeks off, necessarily doubling the length of time. You could say the diet, but it's actually doubling the length of time before you get to your goal. You could argue that half that time is not a diet though, um, but you could also argue, well, even though you're not dieting, you're tracking your calories and trying to hit maintenance, which is a really important point we'll talk about in a second on the behavioral side. So no matter how you dice it, you might get some advantage in terms of maintaining energy expenditure a little better in the adaptations from dieting. You may get uh, an advantage in in retaining muscle mass, and it may help you um, uh, be a little bit less hungry and more able to follow the diet itself. Um, so, I think there, there are advantages, and those findings match the anecdotes I've seen having used these as a coach for the last six or seven years of 3D muscle Journey. Um, and it makes sense from a uh, perspective of what happens when you start dieting. So, all the negative adaptations that we were talking about that we associate with being lean or trying to stay lean or dieting and feeling like crap, being food focused, not having libido, waking up in the middle of the night, all of that's associated with low energy availability. Uh, and all that falls under, and more, under the category of relative energy deficiency in sport. So when there's not sufficient energy for our body to maintain all physiological processes and the activity we're asking it to do as athletes, it starts cutting costs, like a corporation would do if its income came down. It fires Tammy from accounting, uh, it puts us on motion sensor lights, um, furloughs some people, and uh, you know only keeps the AC and the heat on when it's really cold or really hot right? And you feel that as a person, you know, uh, women will notice, hey, you know, it's no longer time. My body does not think we have a sufficient energy to support more life than my own. So my menstrual cycle is gone. Uh, doesn't want me creating breast milk right now. That costs a lot of energy. Uh, I'm not going to be feeding another human. I can barely feed myself apparently. So no no, no more babies for you. Guys, same thing. You'll find that uh, libido goes away. You'll no longer be waking up with an erection. Um, you'll find interest in sex, desire, all, all goes down. Um, sleep starts to get dis- disrupted. Um, this has been theorized as, hey, go wake up and find food, since we have hunter-gatherer roots. Um, you'll find an intense increase in focus on food. Uh, you'll see a shift in leptin and ghrelin, uh, so the leptin, the kind of the master controller of energy expenditure and being in a fed state, starts to drop. Uh, leptin is also secreted by body fat, which is why you can't hang out too lean, even if you get yourself out of a deficit. Uh, ghrelin is the quote-unquote hunger hormone. That'll go up. So you'll find that you don't get quite as satiated from meals. Um, your hunger tends to, uh, to be a little more omnipresent all the time. Uh, and essentially, all this stuff accumulates the, the in, com- in combination of how long you spend in a deficit and how harsh the deficit is. So necessarily, that means that the only way to reverse this stuff is to come out of a deficit and actually, in reality, to regain that body fat, as we talked about uh, body fat being a secreter of leptin. So, when you take a diet break or when you go on a refeed, you're getting pause on some of the stuff. Um, you can see a lot of so, some reversal of, of these uh, adaptations. Um, however, there is a time component as well. There's some data to suggest that uh, you take a woman who is experiencing uh, luteinizing hormone pulsatility disruption, uh, luteinizing hormone. Uh, and and its pulsatility indicates whether or not there may be a disruption in the menstrual cycle. Now, if you take that person and they've been fasting or eating very low calories and you see that disruption in a study and you give them a huge surplus for one day, within 24 hours, LH pulsatility might not go back to normal. But you give them 48 hours of the same amount of calories spread out over two days, basically like two days of maintenance, things start to get normalized. And this makes sense. Again, that evolutionary hypothesis if we're going through uh, you know, winter, no food availability, and we find one animal or one pocket of, of berries that grow in the winter or something like that, the tribe eats all the berries or kills the animal, eats it all, no more food again, right? We wouldn't want to then start popping out kids and start burning a whole bunch of calories. So um, the idea is, is that essentially there's, there's some benefits to not being in a deficit right now. That, are, that don't really carry kind of a cascade like glycogen, right? Um, like being able to have the energy right now to do something. It might improve your acute performance. There's benefits from a slightly longer period, diet breaks and refeeds without fat gain, and that is you know preventing some of those hormones from dropping lower and getting into a better place. Uh, and that can completely deal with those problems if you're not super lean. But if you're super lean and in a deficit, that can only make you feel so much better. And until you gain, regain body fat, you're going to experience those same symptoms. So all up, that means that for someone who needs to get really, really, really super lean, um, may be benefits to coming back into maintenance. Um, this can make the, the ride a little smoother. This can maintain your body's ability to synthesize glycogen. Uh, there is data to show that if you're on an extended low-calorie, uh, I, should, I should say low-carbohydrate diet, which is a necessary consequence of being low-calorie, right? because it's got to come from somewhere, and you're probably going to keep your, your protein sufficiently high. Um, that you actually get uh, down regulation of the enzymes that help you store glycogen. So you get flatter and flatter, and there's also this lower amount total amounts of carbohydrate you your training, right? So you're burning that carbohydrate, and it gets restored uh, or rather resynthesized uh, a lot slower. So being able to have these high-calorie days can uh, restore sleep patterns temporarily to normal, can uh, make you feel a little less hungry, can... Uh, Mitigate some of the adherence issues if they are coming from the, the harshness of the diet, uh, but the trade-off is that the whole process takes longer. And I think, from my anecdotal experience, that's worth it in most cases, and it does result in a, a better appearance on stage in the long run. And, and there is some data now, like I said, out of Dr. Campbell's lab, to suggest perhaps uh, better maintenance of muscle mass, and that could be driven by better performance, uh, you know, or, or, or other factors. So. On balance, I think you need to understand that um, the potential benefits are not magic. They do require more time. It is a trade off, but it may be a proportionately worthwhile trade off. However, how you do it is very important. Um, If you're someone who is actually trying to maintain the the weight loss in the long run, like unlike a bodybuilder, a bodybuilder is trying to get some place that they don't want to stay, like we talked about. then the mentality of a diet break or a refeed should be all about practicing the life you're going to be getting to. Because the weight loss you're trying, it's not just, I want to lose 30 pounds for this wedding. but maybe what the, your client actually tells you when they walk into your office. Mm. What they're really saying is, this is the way I always wish I looked, and I want to be me. I want to be the way I envision myself at this wedding, not this, this person I don't like right now. What you're seeing, that's not me, to, to kind of quote Dan John. So that means they need to learn a new lifestyle. And commit to that lifestyle for where they're going to get to. So losing fat is is not nearly nearly that hard. And most clients who are struggling uh, or people have done that before, but then can't keep it off. So as a trainer or as if you're guiding yourself through this process, yes, you do what needs to be done to lose the fat. But each time you do a diet break or a refeed, it's not a cheat meal. It's not a cheat day. It is you practicing the maintenance that you're going to be living life in this new body with and getting used to what those food combinations look like. What are those habits? Uh, and if you find yourself needing to cheat on that process and it turns into these binges, that's counterproductive. But it also indicates that the process you're doing and where you're trying to get to right now with your current mentality and behaviors is probably not sustainable. And what you're doing is probably setting yourself up for failure. So I find that refeeds and diet breaks in the general population should probably be termed practicing maintenance, Uh, and then it's basically like when you start to struggle in the process, like, okay, let's take a break. Let's eat at maintenance. We're still going to track. Maybe we can make the tracking a little looser, incorporate some new foods, but this is an opportunity for you to see that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and it's actually pretty sustainable, rather than, again, going back to that same analogy of waiting until your car breaks down to get your oil changed, you know? And then for an athlete, it's a very different approach. It's like, look, we're going to push you to the nth degree. We need to either make this weight class cutoff. We need to to get on stage shredded. All that body fat on you needs to be not visible um, because you have an extrinsically driven, extreme goal. We're not trying to maintain this. It's counterproductive to maintain this to your long-term goals as an athlete. So what we need to do is to make this uh, outcome the best thing. And that means that, you know what, I think – 20 week diet instead of a 10 week diet makes more sense with interspersed refeeds. Sorry, interspersed diet breaks and weekly refeeds. So that's kind of the way I juxtapose them. And uh, yeah, and and then emphasizing to that athlete, like, look, refeed day is just as important as a diet. You're going to track your calories. You're going to hit certain targets. It's not. It's not a break. It's not a cheat meal. Um, It is a a planned strategy to try to maximize our outcomes. So it's just as important as those deficit days.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as you touched on before, like from a behavioral perspective, if you're going through this 20-week cut and you're having a few refeeds in there and diet breaks, you'll have possibly a, a more positive behavioral acceptance of, okay, dieting is not that bad. Like, it sucks at times and stuff, but I'm actually okay with it. If I wanted to do it again next year, I could probably do it again.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of people, they think that, especially if they have a fair amount of weight to lose, like, this is... Like, oh, I'm, I'm on this diet that's 1,800 calories, and that's what I'm going to have to live on. And it's like, no, you're, you're losing, you know, like you're in a, a 1,200 calorie deficit. You're actually going get to, get, get to get to live on once we adjust for body weight, like close to 3,000 calories. But what you've been doing with the current food you're eating is closer to 4,000, but it's highly palatable foods. You're not very active. So if we get you finding an activity you love, your hunger will get better better regulated um, you'll have a similar energy expenditure to what you have now, but at a lower body weight because you have enjoyed this physically active lifestyle. Uh, and then the, the foods that we that you learn to incorporate and you increase your amounts of fruits, vegetables, and protein, you're going to find you're just more satiated for a lower total amount of energy, um, and that will result in you being able to maintain this weight loss. Not you've got to eat you know salads and fruit and, and chicken breasts all the time like you're currently doing to get there, and what better way to teach someone and make them feel like the process is sustainable than getting, getting the, the, the opportunity to actually do that and practice it uh, you know, when they're still a year out from their goal sometimes. You know, So I think that can really make that, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel that's not yet visible uh, seem like it is actually a light. It's not, okay, I can lose this body fat, but is this even going to be worth it? Can I sustain this? I can't eat like this forever. Um, knowing that they don't have to is, is I think really, really valuable.
0: absolutely I love that I love that what you said about the uh, practice of maintenance it's not a cheap meal it's not a reward meal it's a process in which we take you from eating 1800 calories to say 2400 calories and you're still going to eat good quality highly nutrient dense foods and you're going to practice what your life's going to be like post this dieting phase
1: exactly
0: so I wanted to touch next on on routines I mean if you have routines specifically to optimize your life for success on a Because a day-to-day basis, so if we're looking at the first sort of hour of your day, what does the first hour of your day look like when you wake up?
1: Yeah, one of the things I do is um, I take a walk with my wife, and we I either I either cook for us and I make I make breakfast, and then we go on a walk, or we take a walk to a cafe and Mm. we have breakfast. Um, And this does two things: it gives me the opportunity to connect with uh, you know the love of my life and my life partner, and it also as someone who works from home and does a lot of online work and. You know, what I'm doing right now is considered part of my work, even though I love it, which is cool. It's great. Don't get me wrong. I would never complain about uh, this, this position in life. I've got me to. Uh, but a uh, heavy work day will typically result in, especially if I don't train, 1,500 steps. You know, And unfortunately, I wish this wasn't the case, um, there is independent effects of, of exercise and sedentariness. So yeah, exercise, positive thing for, for life. Uh, positive thing for, for mental and physical health, and obviously positive for performance. Um, but an independent factor is time spent being sedentary on the opposite of that on Mm -hmm. negative effects for your, for your quality and and quantity of life. So for me, a lot of the the behaviors that I put in place to support me are specific to the, the, the problems I will run into if I just go by default. Uh, so I try to get in one to two walks a day. Um, Normally, I work that into my life, you know, so I'll walk to the grocery store, I'll walk to a meeting, we live in the city, uh, or I'll walk to get something, anything I need to do, I'll find an excuse to go walk and do it if I can, it's not too far away, then I'll also take the intentional walk that I do with my wife, which serves to get me out in nature, get me out in fresh air, get me some sun, and also connect with the person I care about. Um, I also, I try to at least once a week, spend some time meditating, Um, and I normally, I've it's difficult to set up a habit that you don't do daily, but I have actually found that I can do it weekly if I just kind of think of this thing i got to tick off my list this week. Um, in lockdown, I got to the point where I was one of those stupid memes of influencers where it's like they give the, the, like the four-hour routine of what they do. Like I meditate. I do mo- my mobility work. I go on my first walk. I cook breakfast. I take my supplements, <laughs> and then I train, and then I do my second walk. And then I do my, you know, like, and, then, and I realized that this was only sustainable because I was being forced to stay in my apartment. Mm. Um, so I kind of had to dial that back and realize that if I want to have the, uh, a life of, of being let out of my cage, which now we are, thank God, um, that it needs to be something much more achievable. So now I have uh, a weekly tick of I need to meditate rather than daily meditation. And I do my, my mobility work at the gym when I go there. So now it's five days a week instead of daily. So um, those, are, those are kind of the things that I try to get in. And then I also uh, try to do some reading um, outside of what is required for my job. Uh, again, this awesome job I have that is related to my job and personal development, but not required for what I'm currently doing because it's very easy. I have MAST, so monthly applications and strength support, and I am also supervising PhD and master students. So it's very easy for me to categorize that as, oh, I'm, I'm getting better at it. But the problem is when that goes away, and there are time periods where it does, that I don't stick with it. So for example, um, I did master's degree, a PhD, and a bachelor's, and I had personal training certifications. So from basically 2005 till 2017, I was constantly engaged with uh, reading about exercise science, psychology, and nutrition, and that's great. And then I started mass, which is awesome. Now every month I'm reviewing uh, one written article and all the stuff related to it on this topic and doing one video, uh, and I'm also peer reviewing my, my, my colleagues, and then I had master's and PhD students. But I still try. Uh, to read a little bit of something that is not any of that, that's still related to my field. It's kind of personal development, continuing education or whatever uh, a little bit each week as well um, because I find that keeps me in the process and it's a different headspace to intentionally do that, carve out time for it. Uh, and that's also separate from me. Just reading for pleasure, which I do on my own. Um, so those are kind of the things that I purposefully tick off and I say are part of my routine. Um, I almost don't feel like me categorizing my training as part of my routine should be part of it because it's something that I I love doing. It's uh, my favorite part of the day. So, um, yeah, that's pretty much it though. Mm. And then I have my workflow, what I find works best for me. I normally start with low hanging fruit, which makes me feel motivated, and then I go from there. A lot of people like, you know, start with something hard, get it done, get a big win to start the day. And I find that can sometimes be too challenging, like me trying to write. I first wake up in the morning. People love that. They get sequestered. They get the coffee. They write. It doesn't work for me. If I take a big, challenging, creatively demanding task early on, I will think about doing it for a while and not get the ball rolling. But if I build confidence, if I have on a podcast, meet someone lovely like yourself, have a good discussion, and then I get off and I'm a bit extroverted. I feel energized. I'm like, hey, that was awesome. It's a great start of the day. I got something done. Then I feel like I have the self-efficacy to jump into uh, something that, that's more challenging. So I normally start the day with responding to my easy emails, posting something on Instagram if I've got that lined up for the day, or doing a podcast, or all three. Um, it takes a lot of time, but I've also tried the opposite, where I go, oh, I'm spending all this time doing routine things. That took me three hours to do my emails, an Instagram post, and a podcast. could have spent that time writing, except I wouldn't have been writing. I would have been banging my head against the keyboard. So I think I've started to, to realize that I, I do better with um, building momentum and, and getting easy wins and then I can I can take the leap and see what I can get done for two to three more hours of the day and get some, get some deep work done um, because I, I don't want to be the person who has an office job who is at work for eight hours but didn't work for, for more than three. I do a lot better when I do this stuff, start on something, have lunch, come back, um, do some real work and then go train. And then if I'm still energized, do a little more.
0: So we talked about reading just before. One of the things I like asking is, is there any books that you could recommend people check out? A book that might have just changed your perspective on a thought process, on life, on a philosophy?
1: Yeah, man, there's a few. Um, Yeah, Atomic Habits is really, really good. If we're going to talk about on on the topic of routines, behaviors, Mm -hmm. and setting up um, uh, ways of of changing your habits and your behaviors, Uh, that's by... um,
0: James Clear, James is it? James Clear.
1: Yeah. Yep. Another really fantastic one that's actually in front of me, I just finished it, is by Chip Conrad, and it's called Are You Useful? Uh, he wrote oh, it a little ways back, I want to say 2015 or 2016, but he's uh, someone I consider one of the teachers of mine, still a friend of mine, he's out in California, he's the owner of Body Tribe Gym, and he's been around a long time, a lot of smart, uh, good. Uh, I would say really, really good perspectives, and kind of getting it kind of back to that beginner's mind, of like, you know, what does this really mean? Why are we doing it? And I think the perspective's there on what does fitness actually mean and how to develop your own, like, philosophy of training and figuring out what matters to you and helping people you're trying to help realize that and understanding that a lot of the ways maybe that our default setting is as health and fitness practitioners is kind of broken and is going to lead someone down to restarting that path again. That recidivism is almost built on the fact that we treat training like going to the dentist, you know, unless you're just someone who loves lifting, which most of your clients don't. That's why they're they're not personal trainers and you are, is that it's like, okay, I, I can force myself to do this. I'll self-flagellate and you can help me because I get so tired of whipping myself. Well, you whip me for, here's some money. Whip me. And then I'll, once I get into great shapes, tweet, I'll eat these foods. I'll, I'll, it's okay. It sucks. This food sucks. It's, I'm, I'm working so hard. I feel so good because I'm self-flagellating. It's like it's at the very start, we know that's a temporary process. So, um, trying to look at, at, uh, at, at exercise and, and, and a different lifestyle it's exciting as potentially having elements of play and uh, gamifying it in a way that's actually enjoyable rather than doing work for work's sake. I think, um, yeah, the perspectives on movement, all of that stuff are just such a breath of fresh air and I think will lead people to getting much better results with their clients. So are you useful by Chip Conrad? Fantastic. I just finished it. And then uh, I listened on audiobook. I actually recommend reading it. James Clear's Atomic Habits because there's so many actionable things you'd want to take notes on. I loved listening to it. It changed my perspective just from that, but it kept making me think like, you know, I'd love to actually have this with a highlighter.
0: Who is your biggest inspiration, do you think, Eric, in, in life so far? Or it could be a couple of people that's basically helped mold you into the, the thinking, critical thinking person that you are today.
1: Yeah, I mean, I have kind of the some archetype people I've never really truly met, and there's people who have really influenced me in person. Someone I really look up to who I've never met, who I just love what they do, and uh, the way they're always fighting entropy with, with training is uh, Dave Draper, who, uh, those who might not know the blonde bomber, uh, prolific writer now, and uh, one-time training partner of, you know, Frank Zane and Arnold, won the Mr. America in 1965, and then... Uh, the universe in 1970. He competed in that brief window. One thing he's, he says is he's no longer a competitive bodybuilder. He's a he's a an avid muscle builder. He, he's a, him and his fellow bombers. But he's um, in the very last stages of his life, and he is uh, still getting after. Just released a new book. In his book, um, "Brother Iron, Sister Steel" or "Sister Steel, Brother Iron." I'm forgetting the order. I think it's "Brother Iron, Sister Steel." it's amazing. Really great perspectives on all this stuff. Um, kind of gets into the not just how to lift or or or, uh, or the the X's nose of lifting, but why you lift and what it means. So that's someone I look up to. I've never met in my personal life. I've had a lot of great mentors. My original sensei in karate when I was a young kid from like five till fourteen. Uh, sensei Pam Ren, I think now her name she changed it after um, I can't remember her current name. Sensei Ren, I'll say that I know that that's accurate. Um, my, my track coach back in high school, Kevin Morning, um, my Ph.D. supervisor and now colleague, uh, John Cronin, uh, my friend and colleague now who is actually my tertiary supervisor, my Ph.D., Mike Zerdos, um, my friend and colleague, Mike Dushier. T- Mike those were people who all influenced me, but I think most, um, mostly it's my people at 3D Muscle Journey, Jeff Alberts, Brad Mimus, and Alberto Nunez had huge influence on the way I think, my values, uh, what it means to be part of something greater than myself. All, all that stuff has been. All those people are been very influential in my life.
0: Awesome, and I want to be really respectful of the time that we got left. So, as we're coming into a close, what are a couple of the big takeaway points from our conversation that th- people could implement today to basically improve their life?
1: Yeah, man. I think anyone who has uh, concurrent goals of wanting to be really strong and really big, or really muscular at least, um, is to understand uh, to, to to take some of the kind of the idols off the the pedestal. Um, you don't have to to only do fives and you don't have to only do the big three or you don't have to like, I think what, what is building muscle come down to is finding a way to put progressive tension on tissue and the tissue you want to put that, put it on is not your joints. So what's the best tool to hypertrophy a given muscle group in the way that you enjoy it. You can do a fair amount of volume with it because that seems to be associated with how much you grow um, and can recover from It doesn't interfere with your strength work. And then what's the best way to build your strength? If you're built like a little squat nugget, squat. If you're not built like a squat nugget, squat as much you need to, to learn the skill, but then do other movements that that support your your technical inefficiencies or your body type. Um, so finding that um, being more specific for the given task, and then balancing those two together is probably better than trying to be specific for everything at the same time. Fives on tricep pushdowns or twelves on squats. You know, trying to do two things at the same time, you sometimes you, you do nothing. Um, so. That's that. Uh, that probably be the take home advice based on what we talked about.
0: Cool. And what's next for you guys over at three day and for yourself for the rest of this year? What are you working on?
1: Man, that's a good question. I've I've uh, actually really enjoyed giving more and more time to uh, being an athlete. Um, so um, dedicating more time to my training, and now that I have concurrent goals of competing in strongman, weightlifting, and powerlifting um, for a while before I ever get back on a bodybuilding stage. Uh, that it requires me thinking in very different ways, you know. So uh, my bottlenecks are very unique to me, which means the solutions are hard to figure out. You know, how do I get um, better better overhead position when I don't have – it feels like I don't have the, the range to do it thus far, and I know it's possible, but how do I get there, you know. Um, what do you do when you can only snatch 80 kilos, but you can squat over 200? Uh, what do you do when you when you can clean 135, but your best jerk is 115? so these these little uh these question marks are things that uh put me into an uncomfortable position a challenging position um and requires me to rely on the expertise of others and learn so it's been really cool to do that um so we shall see i've i, I had specific competitions april 18th i was going to do a weightlifting comp may 2nd i was going to do a strongman comp uh, but then after eight weeks of being on lockdown i had an extra week because i came back from overseas travel um, and had to self, self-isolate as well on top of the, the mandated country one I became much more intrinsically motivated um, because I had to just focus on what I could do and I have to say I'm a little less interested in getting on the platform um, for any of the three sports right now until I feel like I have made the kind of progress I want and I've corrected the things I want um, I'm a little more intri- internally driven so I don't know what the years can hold for me I want to get better at, at, at weightlifting um, and I want to get stronger. Um, and uh, whether that leads to the platform or, or not, I haven't yet figured that out yet. So I'm just kind of see where my soul leads me at the stake.
0: <laughs> see what life brings you. It's part of the fun, I guess. And yeah. lastly, where can people find you? Where can people reach out and say hello and, and see what you guys are up to?
1: Yeah, like you said, 3DMuscleJourney.com, that's the number three, the letter D, then the words MuscleJourney.com. From there, you can find links to my books. You can find links, that's the Muscle and Strength Pyramids. You can find links to Mass if you click on the products. You can also find over 150 podcast episodes. You can find almost a triple-digit number of of blog posts. Um, You can also find links to the 3DMJ Vault where we have courses to make you a better student of the sport, both free and paid. (laughs) Uh, and then, if you're interested in the history, science, and culture of iron, check out me and Omar Isif at Iron Culture on YouTube, Spotify, and uh, iTunes. Uh, and then, lastly, if you want more daily content, check me out at Helms3DMJ, and we'll have uh, I'll have most almost daily stuff there.
0: And we can all see your uh, your journey and where it takes you, whether you decide to get on the platform or not.
1: Yeah, at the very least, I'll be doing snatches and something that approximates a clean and jerk just i'm not quite a jerk yet but
0: okay we <laughs> we'll be cleaning something along the way yeah exactly it's <laughs> my dishes or who knows beautiful uh lastly i just want to thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show really to appreciate your time
1: yeah i mean my, my pleasure thanks for having me on and uh best of luck keep doing what you're doing